We are picking up in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we are looking this morning at John chapter 18, where we left off last Lord's Day. We have most recently looked at the beginning of the passion of the Lord Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, as he has gone out of the upper room in that special time that he had with his disciples from John 13 to 17, as he has prayed that high priestly prayer as the great high priest of the church in John 17, and then as he has moved into the garden of Gethsemane, where he would be betrayed by one of his chosen disciples, Judas Iscariot, and then he would be arrested. He would be carried off to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest over the Jewish nation, as Peter, one of his other disciples, would deny him. You get the sense that the sufferings of Christ are just getting deeper and deeper. First Judas, then Peter, and now this morning we're going to see him brought before Pontius Pilate that unjust judge, that Roman governor of Judea. And we really see more of the sufferings of Jesus developing now as he is going to stand trial before Pontius Pilate. And we're looking this morning at John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. And we're going to read down to chapter 19, verse 16. John 18, 28 to chapter 19, verse 16. As usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Here in John 18, 28, the Apostle John now records these words. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show but why, but by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so then you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then let me just say this, Pilate, in a very 2022 fashion, there's nobody more 2022 than Pilate, said to Jesus, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man 
for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was literally an insurrectionist. He was a robber who also led a murderous insurrection against the nation. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to him, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he delivered who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them. He delivered him over to them to be crucified. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, if I were to poll you this morning, and if I asked you to write down on a little piece of paper... What name in the Bible, beside the name of Jesus, is taken up most on the lips of God's people throughout the world today and over the past 1,500 plus years? What name in the Bible is taken up on the lips of God's people more than any other name than the name of Jesus Christ? And the answer, and I don't know if you've already picked up on this, is Pontius Pilate. You would think the answer would be Paul or Peter or John or Mary or one of the other disciples. And yet, all over the world, both today and for well over 1,500 years, Christians in every nation have professed in worship that we believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. In the Apostles' Creed, every Sunday we say, I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now that should raise a question. Why should the name of Pontius Pilate be remembered? Uh, The only thing that we know about from Pilate uh, definitively is what we read in Scripture. There are tidbits in church history. There is plenty of tradition. There are myths about him. 
And yet what we can be certain of is that what we know about Pilate is what kind of man he was, what kind of ruler he was, because of his interactions with Jesus. And if I can say this this morning, one of the really big things that I want you to take away this morning out of this message is that at the end of the day, Pontius Pilate found his significance face-to-face and in relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is going to be true of you, too, on Judgment Day. That's why Pontius Pilate is set out the way he is set out in these portions of Scripture. Now, I want us to consider this morning as we look at this passage together and the trial of the holy and harmless, undefiled Son of God, that there are going to be three things we're going to consider. We're going to consider first the accusation, the accusation that the Jews would bring against Jesus to Pilate. Then we're going to consider the examination of Pilate, his examination of Jesus, and then the condemnation, the accusation, the examination, and the condemnation. Well, notice that the Jews have just taken Jesus and specifically the priest who have had him in that priestly house where he was examined by uh, Annas, the, the cousin or the nephew of the high priest Caiaphas, and Caiaphas, and, and they have sought to bring charges against Jesus, that he was guilty of sedition, leading a rebellion, and that he was guilty of teaching falsehood and false teaching against the truth of God. And, and now they, they are bringing him to the Roman authorities. Um, they have drawn their conclusions. It's very interesting when they bring him to Pilate here. John highlights the fact that when they come to him, notice this, the, the accusation, they bring him to the governor's headquarter. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate says to them in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? And then, don't miss it, they don't bring one. They simply say, if he were not guilty, notice that, They simply say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They they have nothing to bring against him. They have acted in all of their self-righteous hatred and malice for the Lord Jesus. They have been scheming throughout his entire earthly ministry to kill him and rid themselves of him. And now as they have him in their possession, as they have him as their prisoner, as they have already brought him before the religious leaders, so full of malice and hatred, now as they bring him to the Roman governing authorities, they really have nothing they can bring against him. It's remarkable. From the beginning of his trial, even from the accusation they seek to bring, to everything Pilate says, there is not one thing that anyone can bring against the Lord Jesus. You know, We do not meditate enough upon the sinlessness of Christ. I was driving with a buddy back in seminary on a trip, and we challenged each other to go through the scriptures from memory and try to think of all the places that taught that Jesus was sinless. And there are so many. Uh, You have Jesus himself in John chapter 7 saying, that the one who comes from God is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus says he is the Holy One of Israel. Um, He is proclaimed by his heavenly Father to be his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. 
he is then proclaimed to be sinless by the demons. Remember, the demons said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew that he was the Holy One of God, that he is the High and Holy One. Um, When Jesus will be brought before Pilate, Pilate can find no wrong in him. When Jesus is nailed to the tree, remember, when he is finally nailed to the tree and the two thieves on the cross, by the way, there's a connection between the thieves on the cross and the two men in Joseph's dream. I'll let you think about that. One perishes, one is delivered. And remember, the one thief, when he is finally brought to saving repentance and faith in Christ, says to the other thief, this man has done nothing wrong. We are here justly. This man has done nothing wrong. And then when the soldier stands at the foot of the cross and he considers what has just happened and he has seen all the phenomenon of the sun being darkened and the earth quaking and all the things that have happened when Jesus is crucified, he says, truly, this was a righteous man. And then we come into the the epistles, right? And the apostle Paul says, God, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And then the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus that, that he was tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. And then the writer of Hebrews says later on about Jesus as the high priest, that he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Now that's important because we can never understand what's going on in the trial of Jesus, and you will never understand your need for Jesus until we come to terms with the fact that he is the only man who has ever walked the face of the earth who never sinned. Think about this, 30-some years, not a sinful thought, I mean, y'all, I'm laying in bed like, Lord, help me every day. Not a sinful thought, not a sinful word, not a sinful action, ever. He is entirely unlike us. And yet he's brought before Pilate now. He's put on trial. Now, Pilate, let me just say this as we're looking at the accusations that are going to be brought What we know about Pilate is that he was sort of a third-rate governor. Uh, There's a lot of tradition that that seems to intimate he wouldn't have even had his job if he hadn't married into the family, that his wife, Claudia, who, remember, has that dream and tells him not to have anything to do with this righteous man, another reference to the sinlessness of Jesus, that she was the granddaughter or great-granddaughter of Caesar, Augustus, and so that he had married into this lucrative position Um, He is put where he is because, remember, Romans and Jews hate each other. And so you can imagine the talk from the upper echelons of the Roman leadership that they'd be like, well, who are we going to put in Judea as the governor? And who's going to decide all these cases for the Jews? Hey, just put Pilate over there. It's not a lucrative position for him. They, They are putting him in a place to judge people that they despise and to govern govern people they despise. And there is evidence that Pilate would have spent most of his time in his home in Caesarea Philippi, a vacation spot, and that he would just come down to Jerusalem to sit in this governor's headquarter 
to rule on cases. We learn from this passage, as we do from church history and other external biblical sources, that Pilate was the kind of man that did things for expedience sake. He, he just wanted to find a way to make everybody happy. He, he wanted to do things not out of a sense of justice, but out of a sense of convenience. Uh, there is said to have been three uh, revolts that occurred under his governorship. Not a good track record. So, um, lots of Lots of revolts. We even see that, don't we, in Barabbas. Here's one right before us in the text that it happened under the governorship of Pilate. And so, so Pilate was not himself a very dignified or respected individual. And now the Holy One of Israel, the sinless Son of God, is being brought before an unjust ruler to be tried in the courts of men. There is no accusation brought against him. Notice that they are coming hypocritically. This is very important. Notice verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. I want you to think about this. The religious leaders bringing Jesus with all the wickedness and malice and hatred in their hearts toward God himself, are pretending to be concerned about holiness externally. There's a word there for us. You can have a heart that is not desirous of the Lord and yet acting hypocritically going through religious motions. It's a great warning to us as they come to accuse Jesus, they are coming in hypocrisy. Listen to this. John Calvin says this, and you got to love Calvin's bluntness. He says, These hypocrites, though they are so full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and avarice, that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell, are only afraid of external pollutions. They don't want to be defiled so that they can eat the Passover. They don't even know that they have the Passover lamb in their possession. I've always thought the irony. They don't want to be defiled so that they can eat the Passover when they don't care one iota about who the Passover lamb is and what it means to feed on the lamb of God and who it's going to be who is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. You know, um, the only accusation that they can bring is finally all the way over in um, chapter 19, verse 7. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. You know what's interesting is the Son of God didn't make himself anything. He's always been the Son of God. That's the divine mystery, isn't it? What they're trying to accuse him of is actually true about him. And they understand that he is making himself equal with God. You know, thrown throughout this whole account, and you've got to listen carefully, under all the oversight of this trial and all the little details in it, the overarching feature is that all of these men, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, they do not know two things— who Jesus is in his person, and who he is in his office as the Redeemer and King. Those are the two things that they cannot embrace. 
They cannot understand. And so the only accusation they can bring him is actually what is true about him. He is the Son of God. Um, their accusations are both hypocritical, as I've noticed, noted, and they are unsubstantiated. There's zero basis for Jesus being where he is other than to redeem you and me. And we're going to come to that in a little bit and talk about why. Why does he subject himself to this? Jesus will, when those accusations are brought forth, he will defend himself, not to get off, but because he has a responsibility before his Father in heaven to speak the truth about who he is and why he came into the world. It's the only reason why Jesus answers. Remember elsewhere, he is silent. And remember Isaiah said he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What Isaiah is saying is when he was accused, he didn't feel the need to defend himself in, in order to escape the sufferings that he came into the world to do. He subjected himself, but while he did that, he had a responsibility to bear witness about who he is in truth and why God the Father sent him into the world. Well, I want us to secondly consider the examination. We've briefly seen the accusation, and in, in the examination, Pilate decides he will spend some time cross-examining Jesus. And you'll notice that, as I've noted, he, he doesn't really even feel like he knows where to begin. You get this sense with Pilate as if he really doesn't know why Jesus is there. There's even a sense, and, and don't miss this, there's even a sense when we read this account that Pilate sort of looks like a reasonable guy. He'll say on three or so occasions, I'm not finding any fault with this guy. Um, he, he seems like there's almost some kind of mysterious admiration he has for Jesus. And yet, he still cross-examines him. Notice he says in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Now, let me, let me explain this. This question, are you the king of the Jews? And, and you, may, you may have some preconceptions already. But if I can give you an analogy, this would be like me asking all the men in this congregation, have you quit beating your wife yet? And you don't want to say yes, and you certainly don't want to say no. It's the best illustration I can give you. Have you stopped stealing from your employer yet? You don't want to say yes, and you don't want to say no. You see, Pilate doesn't know what he's really asking. He's thinking politically. He's thinking, are you a self-appointed king come to bring a political revolution, to overthrow the Roman government, to put yourself in a position of power? Because remember, the Jews had not had a king over them, a physical king, for quite a long time. They don't have one over them right now. They do not have a Jewish king. And so, so Pilate is thinking what's going on with Jesus is that he is a political revolutionary, and he is going to lead sedition. So he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And notice Jesus doesn't say yes or no, and we know he is the king of the Jews, but not in the sense that Pilate thinks he is being accused 
of being the king. And notice Jesus doesn't answer him according to his folly. He says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now what he's doing is Jesus is unpacking the error of Pilate's question. He's trying to say, if you're asking for yourself, you're asking a political question. If you're asking because of what the Jews said, they should know that I am the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel, the Son of David. So, you see, Jesus is trying to help Pilate understand, you are not asking the right question of me. And the question you're asking, I'm not going to answer, because to answer it would be to play into your wrong assumptions about me. I do want to say this this morning. Many, 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 many people have wrong assumptions about Christ. Many people put him on par with a great religious leader, together with Muhammad or Buddha um, or many, any other religious leaders. Some people uh, put Jesus just on par with the great prophet within the, the realm of uh, Judeo-Christian teaching. Um, this is a fundamental question about who Jesus is, about his person, not just about his office. And, and so as Pilate is cross-examining him, and let, let me say this this morning. This ought to be the most astonishing thought. I was reading Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch prime minister of the 19th century, on this passage, and and he said, you know, this is an astounding picture of the humiliation of the Savior. An astounding picture of the humiliation of the Savior to subject himself to this. Kuyper says this. He says, here the Lord makes himself of no reputation. He is judged by a creature of his own hand. If that's not astonishing, there's something horribly wrong with your understanding of the gospel, scripture, who Christ is. He made Pilate, and now he's subjecting himself to a creature of his own hand. What a, what a mark of humiliation this is for Jesus. The judge of all the earth, putting himself before this cross-examination of an unjust earthly ruler that he himself had made and given life and breath to. Um, I noted that Pilate really has no desire to know the truth. Again, notice verse 38. He, he would fit perfectly in 2022. I mean, I could see Pilate being a regular contributor on, on the news. What is truth? Pilate's essentially saying, I really don't care about what is objective truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. You know, he's responding to Jesus. Notice this. Jesus answered finally in verse 37. He said, you say that I am a king. You're right. As you say, I am. But then notice this. For this person, I, pur purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, Jesus is saying a couple things here. Okay, don't miss this. He says, for this reason I was born. He's a man. For this reason, I have come into the world. He's God. Do you see that? Don't miss that. Jesus is saying, am I a king? I'll tell you who I am. I was born. I am a man. I came into this world because I am God. 
And I came to bear witness to the truth. And remember, Jesus is the one who in the upper room would tell his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's important because in a day when truth is constantly being questioned in our society, and man, I feel very, very sorry. I'm going to sound like my dad, I know, for the generation coming up where objective truth has just been obliterated and you do what you want and you do what you feel. And here's, here's the reality. Truth is not this abstract thing up here. It's a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. For this reason I was born, for this reason I came into this world, that I may bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and Pilate says, what is truth? You can't hear him. Now, it's not so much that Pilate doesn't want to hear Jesus because of a lack of understanding. It's not that he doesn't have enough truth about Jesus. It's not that Jesus hasn't brought him along enough to understand what he needs to believe. It's that his mind and heart are darkened and that he doesn't want to believe the truth. When men and women reject the truth of Christ, it's because they do not, as will be said in one of Jesus' parables, we do not want this man to rule over us. Sinclair Ferguson says this, What turns so many away at the end of the day is not their understanding, but their fear in their heart of the consequence of trusting in Jesus Christ. It's not a lack of understanding that keeps you from trusting in Jesus if you're not trusting in him. It's because you know what it will mean if you do trust in him. You don't want the mockery of the world. You want the scorn of friends. You want to be thought cool. You want to be acceptable. You want to live your own life and do what you want to do. It's not a lack of understanding about who Jesus is. It is, as Ferguson said, a fear in our hearts of the consequence of trusting in Jesus. Pilate knows as he's accusing him what it's going to mean if he acknowledges the truth about him. Isn't that interesting? Um, I want to thirdly consider the condemnation, the accusation, the examination, and now the condemnation. Um, notice after saying that, Pilate goes back and tells the Jews, I find no guilt in him. And then then he, he appeals to them. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When Pilate brings Barabbas out and he says to the Jews, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? He's actually thinking that he's appealing to some sense of integrity and justice in the Jewish people that they would never dream of picking an innocent man over a murderous leader of a rebellion. He's actually hoping they will do the right thing so he doesn't have to do it for them. This is how low his integrity is as a judge. And so he, he tells them, look, you have a custom. You choose who you want. And notice they cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Um, here we are seeing the very beginning of the condemnation of the Son of God. Um, here the sinless one is being held out and a notorious, wicked man is set up next to him. 
and the people are going to choose Barabbas. By the way, Barabbas means son of a father over the son of the father. I don't think that's coincidental. They're going to choose a wicked, rebellious man over the sinless, holy, harmless son of God. Not this man, but Barabbas. We would rather have an insurrectionist. We would rather have a mass murderer than have this man rule over us. That shows, doesn't it, how deep the depravity of the human heart is. That's in my heart and your heart by nature. We're no different. We don't sit back and look at this and say, you know, I'd never do that. No, we sing. It was my sin that held him there. We say, I hear my voice among the crowd cry out with the scoffers. We are no different than them. If we had been there, we would have said by nature, not this man, but Barabbas. Charles Spurgeon once said that what man has wanted to do since the fall when Cain killed Abel, and and what he was really trying to do was cut God's throat, Spurgeon said, because Abel belonged to the Lord. He was trusting in the Christ to come, and, and Cain was killing his brother because he hated God, and if he could cut God's throat, Spurgeon said he would, and here now, here is God bound. Here is God on trial. And, and men are doing what's in their hearts if they can get at God anything to get at him, anything to condemn him, anything to destroy him, anything to remove him. Um, notice Pilate goes on in chapter 19, and I won't go over it in great length, but he flogs Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put the purple robe on him. They mock him. They strike him more. Um, they bring him out, they mock him, they parade him. They say, behold the man, and he says, behold your king. Now, what's interesting about the condemnation of Jesus is that while Pilate and the priest and the people don't realize it, God has orchestrated all of this. Remember Simon Peter, who has just denied Jesus, on Pentecost, will say that Jesus was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This was no surprise to Jesus. Remember, we've seen this. Jesus is laying his life down. This was what was planned in eternity. All of these details down to a crown of thorns. Why thorns? Because thorns infested the sin-cursed ground. And here is the one who is going to become a curse for his people. Why does he Because God cursed the ground when Adam sinned. Why is he arrayed as a king? Because Adam failed to be the king that he should have been in the garden. When when Pilate brings him out, and he has no idea what he's saying, and he brings him out as as a, a mocked and beaten king, and he says, he says to them, Behold the man. We are to hearken back to the garden and understand this is the last Adam. This is the man coming to suffer for us. Why does he go through what he goes through under the unjust condemnation of Pilate and the Jews because of our sin? You know, I would rarely ever make this statement because I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is vastly superior to all other confessions of faith. 
I would make that statement, but I would barely ever make this statement. I think the Heidelberg Catechism gives us one little thing that the confession doesn't that is so marvelous, and it's not that first question we love so much. Listen to this. Heidelberg Catechism, question 38. The two authors write this question, why did Jesus suffer under Pontius Pilate as a judge? Why did Jesus suffer under Pontius Pilate as a judge? Listen to this answer. That he, being innocent, might be condemned by the temporal judge and thereby deliver us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Why did this have to happen? Why did the Son of God have to end up in a human court, be falsely accused, be unjustly judged, be condemned, be crucified, because we deserve the just judgment of God in the divine court. And to show us what Jesus was doing, God put him in a human court. And the writers of the Heidelberg say he had to be judged in a human court by a temporal judge to show that God was thereby delivering us from his severe judgment to which we were exposed. That's amazing. How do I know, in short, how do I know that I will not fall under the condemnation of God on Judgment Day? Because I deserve it, and you deserve it. How do I know? How in my conscience can I have peace that I will not come under the judgment of God on that last day? Because Jesus came under the condemnation that I deserved in a human court for my sin in my place. Even in the exchange with Barabbas, the principle of substitution is happening. You know, I, I dated a girl that I'm glad I didn't marry. She's a godly girl, but I'm glad I married my wife. Um, but she said to me as a very young Christian, she said once, you know, this is sort of sanctified imagination, but she said, I like to think of Barabbas standing there watching Jesus crucified, thinking about how he had escaped judgment by Jesus taking his place and him coming to know the Lord just like the thief on the cross. We don't know that that happened, but, but the principle of substitution is there. And Jesus is putting himself in our place before the human court and allowing himself to be judged and condemned unjustly because we deserve judgment. This is a great comfort to our souls. Before he even goes to the cross, Jesus is showing us that he has come, as the Heidelberg says, to deliver us by being condemned to deliver us from the severe judgment of God. You know, it's interesting in all this passage, this is really God putting Pilate on trial, isn't it? Um, Pilate thinks he's putting Jesus on trial, but God is putting Pilate on trial. God is putting the priests, the religious leaders, God is putting the Jewish people, God is putting us on trial. Don't miss that. This morning, God is putting us on trial. And he's saying, do you know who my son is? Remember, Jesus said, for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, that I may bear witness to the truth. And then he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's an entirely different kingdom. It works in an entirely different way than worldly kingdoms. My servants don't fight to have me delivered. In fact, my kingdom is established by me being condemned and hanging on the cross for the sins of my people. 
That's how my kingdom works. That's how I set up. The old writers used to say this. This is how Jesus sets up his throne of judgment in our hearts. How he convicts us of sin, but then how he applies to us the gospel. And he says, I've stood in your place. I've taken the judgment you deserve. I've subjected myself to the humiliation. I've subjected myself to being treated unjustly for you. This can never, ever, ever get old because on Judgment Day, there is only one thing that's going to matter. It's not how much you served in the church. It's not how smart you are. It's not how zealous you are. It's not how much theology you know. The only thing that's going to matter is what have you done when God put the Son of God before you? Have you seen who he is? Are you trusting in him? Are you a member of his kingdom by grace through faith in Christ? That's it. You know, Judgment Day is a terrifying thought. If you even have the the most basic sensitive conscience, it's a terrifying thought. And yet, for those who have trusted in Christ, who's had our consciences cleansed by his blood, who've had the guilt of our sin taken away in his judgment, it's, it's our entry into glory. John, in this gospel, says, whoever believes in the Son has already passed from death to life and will not enter into judgment. How can John say in chapter 5, whoever has believed in the Son has already passed from death to life and will not enter into judgment because the Son would enter into judgment? I don't know about you, but I need to hear that all the time because we love to start thinking about, am I doing enough? Am I working more? Am I trying hard enough? Is my life good enough? And and that gets you into the never enough quagmire. Never enough. Always got to do more. Got to serve more. Got to do more. Got to work more. Got to try more. Got to read my Bible more. Got to do this more. And while all those things have a place in the Christian life, they are not this. And, And they can't give us that peace that we need. This and this alone gives us the peace that we need. God is putting Pilate on trial, but God is also putting us on trial. Um, I want to say this in closing. At the very beginning, I told you that in a, in a sense, um, what Pilate is known for is exclusively in the relationship he sustains to Jesus Christ. What we remember him for, when we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, we are saying what this man is, who he was in relationship to Jesus. We say that about Judas. We say it about Peter, which we saw last week. But when we say it here, we're also saying it about us. What is the trial of Jesus to teach us in his accusation, his cross-examination, his condemnation, and what it teaches us is that we need him and that at the end of the day, when our lives are done, when God closes the chapter on your life and there's no more laughter or tears or joy or experiences, when it's all done, the only thing that's going to matter is you in relationship to Jesus Christ. I love the assurance of pardon that we read this morning. Matthew 11, 26 and following, I believe. And I want to I just say that to you as we close here. And I want to ask you this morning, 
what you're doing with Jesus. What are you doing with Jesus Christ? That's the big question. Um, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden over your sin, over the guilt of your sin, over not being good enough, over not doing enough, over not being fruitful enough. Come to me with all the weight of your guilt, corruption, all of your doubts and fears. Come to me, all you who weary, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the question we have to answer is, as we look at Jesus on trial, is am I coming to him? Am I following him? Have I stopped crying out in my heart, crucify him, crucify him? And am I saying, this is my king, and I belong in his kingdom? And he is the king of all glory and grace. He is the king of truth. And he is the king that came to redeem me by him being condemned for me to deliver me from the severe judgment of God. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this sight of your son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you subjected yourself to such unjust treatment at the hands of the priest and Pilate, Annas and Caiaphas, that you subjected yourself to the mockery, to the beating, to the scourging, that you subjected yourself to the malice and the hatred of the world, and that you did that, Lord Jesus, that you might redeem us, that you might take the guilt of our sin, that you might forgive us, that you might be condemned for us, that we might take great comfort in that truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, would you make these truths the realest thing in our souls? We pray that you would give us grace, that we might come to the Lord Jesus, that we might follow him, that we might commit ourselves wholly to him, knowing that he has put himself in our place and has already done what we could never do. And so we thank you for our king, and Savior, the eternal Son of God, and we pray that you would make us fruitful members in his kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.